I won't be talking for 45 minutes. You know, I know that's not fair upon you, and I know I've got 45 minutes, so there might be some time at the end for questions, and if you would like to think about some, uh, I would like to warn you in advance that that might, that might just happen. If you look at this picture here, this is a landscape in a place called Mabaha in the Eastern Cape in South Africa, where I've been working for more than a decade. And this, these communities living in, at Ngabaha have been living under these conditions with a few alterations for the past 350, 400 years. But more recently, serious changes to their ecosystems have started occurring. These communities have got no idea why this is happening because the drivers of these changes are acting at a scale beyond their focus. I'll get back to that a little bit later in my talk. Just to say that my co-author here is Brian Walker, and, and he is the chairman of the board of the Resilience Alliance. Um, many of these slides are actually courtesy of him as well. So the structure of my presentation, I'll start off by looking at a few global tipping points in food systems, looking at these global processes that drive what we see going on today. I will then dwell a bit around resilience thinking and practice, talking about what resilience is and what it is not, and thresholds and regime shifts and flips. And then I will look at the challenges facing agriculture through a resilience lens, very briefly, looking at issues such as transformability and examples of global and global, uh, local regime shifts and flips, and then how to address some of these challenges, of course. What are the new ways of thinking? Which types of innovations and new investments and new practices that might promote resilience are we aware of? And I'll also share a few resilience resources with you right at the end of the presentation. But I want to warn you in advance that my presentation is very conceptual. Uh, so if you're going to be looking for 95% confidence limits in this talk, I think you're in the wrong venue. And I hope you'll forgive me for that. So let's look at some of these global tipping points. The first issue, and we cannot continue to skirt around that, is our numbers and how that is coupled to global carbon dioxide levels. 219,000 new people needing food every day on this planet. And the magical 400 part per million figure there. I believe we've reached that. The Keeling curve tells us that we are at that 400 parts per million. Maybe not permanently, not yet, but we've reached it. So we're facing now the prospect of a planet which is, could be somewhere between four and six degrees warmer than what it is at present. And as this high-level panel convened by Ban Ki-moon said, we can no longer assume that our collective actions will not trigger tipping points, as these environmental thresholds are breached, and we are risking irreversible damage to both ecosystems and human communities. The second issue is how unevenly food production is actually distributed in the world. So if we look at the changes in per capita food production since 1960, according to Jules Pretty and colleagues, we see 
that the world's per capita food production has actually gone up over there. And if we look at Asia, it's actually almost doubled, the per capita food production. If we look at Africa, Africa spells problems. Let's delve a little bit deeper into that unevenness and see what it tells us. Let's zoom in on Africa. The crisis in Africa, African food security. It's again Jules Pretty's work. We see that even within Africa, food production per capita is not evenly distributed. We see that in North Africa, it's increased, as it did in West Africa. But these regions at the bottom here, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern, Af Southern Africa, and Middle Africa and East Africa are actually showing a net decline in per capita food production and bucking the trend in global food production. What does this hold for the resilience of our planet? One of the issues in sub-Saharan Africa is this big boogeyman, and that is population growth. Now, the Global Harvest Initiative looked at this issue of total factor production in agriculture, and it analyzed various regions of the world. When it got to sub-Saharan Africa, it painted an exceptionally, incredibly negative picture. And that is by 2030, the Global Harvest Initiative predicts that the gap between what is actually being produced at the current total factor production levels and what needs to be produced will be 87%. So sub-Saharan Africa, if it continues at the current levels of population growth and resource depletion, will only be 13% self-sufficient in its own food production. Let's have another look at this, this unevenness. So if we look at the uneven income distribution of the world in this philosophical transactions paper by Kirera and Masset, we plot food consumption against per capita GDP. It isn't a big surprise then that if you look at the high per capita GDP countries with the United States at that end, and the low per capita GDP countries with India and China, the large bubbles. So these bubble sizes are the population sizes. On the left, you can see that the per capita food consumption of these low GDP countries is actually just a tiny fraction of what is happening in the rich countries. But the second graph, the one at the bottom, is a little bit more worrying because that depicts food expenditure as a share of household expenditure against per capita GDP. And now we see another worrying picture, and that is that in the, these low per capita GDP countries, food makes up very close to 70%, 80% of household expenditure. And quite the opposite is true in the richer countries. So in other words, if food prices increase, and the per capita GDP is higher, then people can absorb it. They make an adaptation. But on this end of the graph, on the left, left end of figure B, that becomes virtually impossible. So how do you then adapt if you're already spending 75% of 
of household income just on food. This is a figure that Jonathan Foley shared with me, and I'm sure others have got it as well. And that is, what is happening to the crops being produced around the world? So, if we look at where we are right now, we see, according to Foley's map, that around 20-25% of the crop produced find its way to humans. The rest is used for animal feed and biofuels. In my part of the world, it's different. It's a much higher proportion of the crop is used to feed people. But what's going on in the world is that people are moving up the food chain. So as per capita GDPs go up, more and more people are spending their money and their income on meat and on fuel. And we're ending up with this tug of war between the car owners and the meat eaters and the poor communities, many of them in sub-Saharan Africa, for a share of the world's food resources. The big unknown, biofuels. So we can see that biofuel production trends in the world has really risen exceedingly rapidly since 2010, both in ethanol and in biodiesel. But the real issue is, how will this affect food prices? We already see that bioethanol production is tracking the petrol oil price. So it acts as an incentive to produce bioethanol. Therefore, this very sharp increase since 2005. But now, if we look at the price of corn, we see that the price of corn is starting to track that same trend. And we know from other data that there is a very strong correlation between the price of fuel and the price of food. So very soon, we could be sitting in a situation where food be can become really very difficult to afford and can become and can push those countries with the low GDPs right over a threshold or a tipping point. So what's happening when we land, run out of resources? This is an in-press paper that I saw in proceedings of the National Academy of Science recently. And it shows, and they use the rather, rather uh, provocative term land grabs. But what it really means is that it's legal acquisition of land. Land gets bought. You can see that many of the acquisitions are taking place here in Central Africa high rainfall areas, and these are typically in failed states, poor land rights for communities, and massive tracts of land are being purchased by countries which have actually run out of options on their own soil. So this relationship between governance and how governments operate and food security and insecurity is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. So how self-sufficient are the countries of the world when it comes to food production? So in environmental research letters, Feder et al. just recently published this map. 
And they showed that there are some countries which are now importing food for 70 to 100% of its population. And that in Africa, many of the, very few of the countries actually are self-sufficient when it comes to food production. And it's no coincidence then that here in the north, in Algeria and Tunisia, we see that 70 to 100% of the people are dependent on imported food, food not produced within their own country. And so now we start thinking about the link between the Arab Spring and food shortages and food prices. And there's a lot of speculation that actually the riots was actually catalyzed by anger over food prices in those Arab nations. So the available land per capita shrunk. In 1950, it was 13.5 hectares per person, and then it went down to 3.2 hectares per person in 2005, and it's projected to be only 1.5 hectares per person when we get to 2050. Lina Gordon from Stockholm Resilience Center and other colleagues did a review in Trends in Ecology and Evolution of how hydrological flows are being modified. And if we look at some of these trends, for example, in land use, millions of hectares since 1700, water withdrawals, both for irrigation, which went up very sharply in 1950, and also for withdrawal for human consumption, and then the fertilizer use, we can see that our hydrological cycles are really being disrupted. And so what they did in that same paper is they identified a phenomenon they called regime shifts. Now, regime shifts are effectively tipping points beyond which a system has changed its internal structure and functioning. It's no longer the same as it used to be. I will talk a little bit later, uh, 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 talk about it a little bit later in this presentation, but they identified three of these shifts in categories in the aquatic system where the quantity and quality of runoff has changed to the extent where you get eutrophication, hypoxic zones, and river channel changes in these river systems. And once that has happened, that river system is no longer the same. It operates completely differently to what it did before that change or regime shift took place. In the soil system, changes in infiltration and soil moisture lead to salinization, and then you get changes in vegetation patterns as a result, and with slightly less data and more based on models, changes in soil structure, and you get these positive feedback loops between the soil system and the vegetation system taking place, altering the soil permanently. And then in the atmosphere, changes in evaporation and leaf area have resulted in these shifts from wet savannas to dry savannas in the northern parts of Africa in the Sahel, from a cloud, cloud forest to a woodland, for example, from a forest to a savanna, and from an area with monsoons to no monsoons again, the gray type means that there isn't that much data. It's more based on models. This is a review of a large number of papers that they did. So it's not based on their own research. It's based on data that they acquired 
from a whole bunch of examples. And what they make, they make the point in this paper that understanding these permanent regime shifts where the first system changes its internal functioning, its internal structure, and actually its identity could be one of the key keys to understanding resilience. And so there's a database that's now been established. It's called regimeshifts.org, where examples of these permanent changes have been collected using a fixed template. So how can we depict this safe operating space for food systems if we look at it as the integration between economic factors and ecological and social factors? And so this is just a very rough diagram. If we look at just three variables, and that is the consumption of meat and fuel amongst the rich old millions here on this left axis, and the food self-sufficiency of the poor young billions in the south on the x-axis. And we look at another axis, axis, which is the degradation of water and soil, then clearly we want to stay as close to this bottom left-hand corner as we can, because that more or less is the safe operating space. And the question now becomes, what happens if we start, start moving outside of these boundaries? And how far are we from the edge of those boundaries? So there are clear signs that the changes that we then experience will be non-linear. So as we probe the boundaries of this safe operating space, we might see a phenomenon then, and we're beginning to see, of nonlinear change, where systems start flipping into a completely different dynamic stability domain. And that brings us to resilience. Resilience, the central definition is the capacity to absorb disturbance and to then reorganize so as to retain essentially the same function and the structures and the feedbacks. So it's really the system's capacity to have the same identity and retain the same identity. It does involve three intertwined concepts, however. The one is thresholds, which I tried to explain a bit earlier. And that is the resilience of something to some or other threshold. So that's specified resilience. Adaptability is general resilience. So that means we can ask a question, is the University of Nebraska resilient? Is the Plata River resilient? It's how adaptable it is. And the third one is the issue of transformability. So that's the ability to explore new futures and really become a different system. And that's now increasingly becoming a of great interest to us in resilience science because you can imagine that resilience is not always a good thing. So if we look at those two photographs, it's from a, um, an area, semi-arid area, the Karoo in South Africa, and we ask ourselves which of these two states would be the most resilient, I would venture that the bottom one is a highly resilient state. The soil is encrusted, there's virtually no vegetation there. There is habitat for um, lizards, scorpions, and those kinds of things. And it's ex 
incredibly difficult to get the system out of that state once it's undergone that shift into that state. So what it means is that resilience per se is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. How do we remove the judgment from that? And I made the point that even dictatorships can be really, really resilient, and we see that in our part of the world. And the other issue is that a system which is desirable, desirably resilient at one point in time, could become undesirably resilient when the context changes. So, for example, if you have a merger of two companies, maybe it's not a good thing that the company is as resilient as it was before the merger, because you actually want to break down resilience to accommodate the new value systems that, it, that have now emerged. And what we're seeing is that most of the losses of resilience are due to unintended consequences of processes that are outside the focal scale. So while the managers are looking down to the ground, there are other things happening outside of their, off their radar screen, which are really driving the system along. And in particular, these cross-scale feedbacks, and often the cross-scale feedbacks are by these slow-moving variables, right? So they are things that do not change overnight. They are things that are difficult to track. And when they reach a threshold, the system changes, and it changes irreversibly. So back to my photograph of Nabaha. So what is going on here, and I had a student working on this for a couple of years, is a complex set of feedbacks between policies, social behavior, animal density, and the structure and function of this mosaic that you see in this picture. So it's supposed to be a neat mosaic of grassland with forest pockets. What is actually going on is that the woodland is expanding and quite rapidly. So these forests, if we map them out, are two-thirds as large as they were in the 1960s when the first aerial photographs came out. Which is fine, except if you're a livestock owner because the animals, the cattle, need the grasslands. And how did this come about? And if we draw these causal loops, we see that one of the catalysts was the forestry department coming out with a no-burning policy. Now, that was a policy catalyst. The communities were just told that's what should happen. They didn't realize what the consequences would be for their resilience. Second issue is a good policy of government, and that is that every child under the age of 15 must go to school in South Africa. So that happened in the mid-1990s. And these kids, as anyone who's worked in rural areas knows, they are the cattle herders because there are no fences in those areas. And so what these households have then done, partly as a result of the thickening up of the woodland, but also as a result of the departure of this child labor to schools, is they started cutting down on their herd sizes. The other thing that happened, also a good thing, is the provision of piped water nearer to the villages. So there were taps in people's streets. And this created a shift from fields, and you can see there's a field down there. It's abandoned. 
and the agriculture shift up here where the houses are because you spend a lot of energy taking your traction animals right down there to the river. When you get down there, you might find that the bush pig have actually raided your crops. So now you keep it next to the household. You can use a bit of irrigation. You've got much more control over your crop. But the net effect of this is the further removal of fire out of the system. So these feedback group loops then become like a snowball effect or a runaway cycle. Right? So removal of livestock, less grass for livestock, densification of the acacia woodland. Removal of fire, densification of the woodland. And in the end, we find that even those who want to farm with livestock are not able to do it anymore because of these changes that, are ha that have happened as a result of factors that were not on their radar screen. How to reverse this? It's probably not reversible. So if we then depict resilience conceptually as this ball and cup model, right? so here's a basin, and the ball stays in that basin. It can move to the left and the right, but it gets attracted to the middle. That's the resilience of the system. But over here is a threshold. And once the system has overshot that threshold, you can clearly see that it then moves into another domain. And what then happens, if you look on the right-hand side, is that the resilience of the system is not static. So the depth of the basin, which is the resilience in the system, is fluctuating. And as the basin gets shallower, the system, that's the equivalent of the system losing resilience. And in other words, it becoming easier for that flip to occur. And so resilience changes. Resilience is not a static concept. My colleague Brian Walker looked at some of these rangelands in New South Wales in Australia and found that they can essentially exist in two states, the grassy state and the shrubby state. And the feedback loops that drive the change from the system from one state to another is effectively the amount of shrubs versus the amount of grass in the system. The grass is fuel. It fuels hot fires, and those fires then kill off the shrubs. Leads to shrub mortality. But when the grass cover drops below a certain threshold, it could be as a, as a result of ecosystem degradation, overgrazing, mismanagement, then the system changes. And the system on the right can no longer support grass, so it's locked into that state. More or less permanently, unless you come up with very, very expensive management practices. Here's another way to look at this. So if we look at the system, this rangeland system, with the grassy state on the left here, and the shrubby state on the right, and we look at three other variables, and that is the yield per hectare, and the market price for meat, and we look at the cost of management, and that includes ecosystem management. We see that initially, the system fluctuates around this domain here. And it's fairly resilient. It's a deep cup, a deep basin. And the system moves up and down here, always gets attracted back. It's a profitable state. It's a state that also 
conserves ecosystem services. And then a global factor kicks in, and often it's global demand for products, such as meat in this case. And what happens is people start loading their rangelands because they want to make a quick, quick buck. So then, locally, the response then is overgrazing. Unbeknown to them, what happens is the system then crosses a threshold of grass density. And all of a sudden, it starts fluctuating in this domain here. And getting it back across to the other side becomes very, very difficult. And so it's barely profitable. And then you find that infrequent fires at the local level kick in. The system shifts closer and closer to that shrubby state. And all you need then is a very sharp increase in the fuel price. And that is the last camel, the last straw that breaks the camel's back. And there's no way out of that. So that last basin is the basin of bankruptcy. We look busy looking at some of the dairy systems in our part of the world. We see something fairly similar happening on those three axes. We see a global demand for dairy products as a global driver. And so what happens is farmers start investing. They invest in more and more infrastructure. They increase their herd sizes because that's their response to this increase in the global demand for dairy. Same thing happens, a drought kicks in. So many of the farmers then move into a new stable state. So they're barely hanging in there, they're barely making a profit. And to be able to cope, they start over-pumping the groundwater. And that's when ecosystem depletion kicks in. So then you have water shortages, and the final straw is this issue of cheap imports. So European Union subsidies are discovered, and some of these large supermarket chains import tons of cheese from the European Union. And that results then in many of the farmers completely going out of the system. So try to learn and understand how these succession of global factors, local responses and adaptations, many of them unintended, result in a slow slide of the system from one state to the next, undergoing these successive regime shifts, we believe could be key to understanding the sustainability of our food systems. And that brings us to transformability, because I think one can end up becoming very depressed. Transformability is the preparedness of the system to change, and that means getting beyond the state of denial, looking at new trajectories, looking at the options for change, novelty, doing experiments, learning, and also the capacity to change. So that's the levels of capital in the system, the social capital, the amount of trust in the system, the amount of human resources, and the big issue, and that's the capacity for decision-making, which we call governance. So Carl Falker and colleagues looked at this trajectory of how systems can actually get into a positive new state 
And one of the key issues is anticipating this, so preparing the system for change. So we're now looking at communities of practice around the world which have taken on this challenge of transformation. And we see that when, before transformation takes place, a very large number of them are actually preparing the system for change. They're anticipating. They're actually building up social capital, forming networks. And then they wait for this thing we call a window of opportunity. So it could be a policy shift. It could be a new minister of agriculture appearing on the scene. It could be a new market opening up. And then they navigate that transition. So they work together. And they cross this hump and go into this new state, this desirable state, and they continue building the resilience in this new direction. And what they do to continue building resilience is they consistently experiment, learn, try out new things, and constantly build trust. So, what do we do in practice? So we can stare at this problem and get terribly worried about it. But in the end, we have to do something. Well, the first issue is to see this system as a social ecological complex system, a complex adaptive social ecological system, meaning that the social and the ecological subsystem is linked. And it's linked through adaptive governance and learning and knowledge, experimentation, understanding the drivers of the system, so looking beyond the scale, looking at these external drivers, land use change, droughts, floods, water reforms, that could be influencing the system. And very importantly, really focusing on these institutions. Institutions are systems for decision-making. They're not organizations in the terminology that we use. And taking this integrated systems perspective and looking at it across multiple spatial and temporal scales seems to be the first step. Then innovation. The rate of change is too fast now. So we have to look at these issues such as biotechnology to really make these faster adaptations that can keep up with the rate of global change. And we see how bio, uh, biotech crops have increased across the world since 2006. So that's promising, of course. It's a two-edged sword as well. It needs to be approached with caution. But there are no holy cows. Investing in appropriate research and development. So by appropriate, I mean R&D that involves the managers, that involves the landowners and the farmers, but also the extension officers. And this is really phenomenal, that the returns to investment in research, 43%, in extension work, 49%. That's from the Global Harvest Initiative project. But there's a big worry because the countries that need that extension and R&D the most are the countries in sub-Saharan Africa because I illustrated the problem earlier. And they are investing much less than 1% of their GDP in research and extension work compared to the high-income countries which are now investing very close to 2.5% of GDP in research and extension. The promise of cooperatives, 
So in India, the Indian National Dairy Corporation has been responsible for India moving to the number one spot in dairy production in the world. And it's because they formed these cooperatives and they're actually harvesting the milk from these small producers like that, the people who own two or three cows. But it requires governance, it requires trust, it requires a lot of leadership because this is where corruption flourishes in some of these cooperatives. Closer to us, the Fort Hare Agri-Park is another example of these, one of these innovations. So where it started with the dream that that university had of starting a nursery. The nursery is now cooperatively owned. It produces plant material, so vegetable material for local producers. And then you get these local producers who are farming on tiny patches of land. But on the university campus, there's also an experimental station, which they call a feeder lot. That's where people come to learn. Again, it's co-owned by the community members. And then central to this whole thing is a state-of-the-art agro-processing facility. It uses solar power. It uses recycled water from the sewage treatment plant. And again, community members, co-workers of the community manning this thing. And what they do is they buy up these vegetables. They chop them up, dry them under solar power, they package them as dried materials, and they transport them to a depot where they get collected by people with low-tech transport. And they get taken to schools and hospitals where government then becomes the buyer of these food, foodstuffs. And there's also private sector markets. What this group is also looking at now is establishing financial systems training people in financial management. And underpinned, underpinning this is the R&D capacity of the university, together with government, together with some of the research institutions. So it's a promising model. Again, it requires government to be on board. It requires decision makers to really be totally committed to making the system work. So if the economists and the engineers and the agricultural economists and the agriculturalists combine forces and that governance issue is missing, then the project is bound for failure. Then working with farmers to incorporate local knowledge. And here's some data from my colleague, uh, Lino Gordon and Elin uh, Enforce. And they asked farmers who had the perception that it's getting drier. Well, how do you know it's getting drier? And, and these folks said, well, we just know. Just trust us. And they looked at the data, conventional data, seasonal rainfall, and could not see any patterns. And so the conclusion is, well, these farmers are delusional. Until they started looking at the, frequency of the frequencies of these 21-day dry spells. And that's where it, when it became very apparent that, indeed, it was becoming drier but using a different definition, and that's the frequency of dry spells. And these local knowledge holders are really able to help us with our research, help us to explore new hypotheses, and helping us with innovation. So what promotes resilience thinking and practice? First point is foster this understanding of social ecological systems as complex and adaptive. Second principle, is to maintain diversity and redundancy. So we know if we invest in the stock market, we won't put all our, all our money in one stock. Why do we do it in farming then? 
managing the connectivity. So the connectivity between the different social networks in the system, but also in the ecosystems, preventing the fragmentation of our landscapes, preventing social fragmentation. Fourth principle, manage the slow variables and the feedbacks and be aware of them because they are the ones that creep up on you when you're not noticing. They're off your radar screen, but they're the ones that cross the thresholds and lead to these precipitous changes. Fifth principle is to encourage learning and experimentation. So we know that resilient systems are founded in this constant experimentation, adaptive management. Sixth principle is to broaden participation, and we find in sub-Saharan Africa particularly participation by women. It's one of the few instruments we have to address this issue of runaway population growth. Agriculture is an exceptionally good entry point for women's empowerment. And then the seventh one is systems of decision-making, and they should be dis well distributed, they should be at every step in the system. So these are governance systems without which none of this will function. But if we put all our hopes on a central government system, I think we're going to be in for trouble because that's where corruption flourishes in many parts of the world. This is from a paper by Renette Biggs at Owl in annual reviews that was published last year. I will skip this because it says almost the same thing. I just wanted to point out to this book called Collaborative Resilience, because in the end, if we look at the social aspects of resilience, collaboration and trust building and networking lies at the heart of it. And then, as promised, I want to share a few resilience resources with you. First one is the Resilience Alliance website. It contains information, news. You can also download some resilience workbooks that enable you to conduct a resilience assessment. So they take you through the process of how to assess resilience. Highly context-specific, must be with the participation of the resource users, but a very handy resource. And then the journal Ecology and Society, and that's an open access journal. And many of the principles that I described here were initially published in, the, in that journal. A number of the editors of the journal are also in this room. And uh, a very useful resource for resilience scholars. And then my co-presenter, Brian Walker, recently published this book called Resilience Practice. Just before this, about two years ago, he published Resilience Thinking. And this is the URL where this book can be can be ordered from, but it's actually how to do it. And using some of these examples from around the world where people have actually managed to enhance their resilience by adopting certain of these principles that I've tried my best to explain to you. Thank you very much. That brings me to the end of my talk. So are there any questions or comments? Sir?
I want to thank you for your presentation. I'm a farmer from Nebraska, dryland farmer, southwest corner, about a half a meter of rainfall a year. And I was listening to your presentation, I come, kept coming up with more and more questions I wanted to ask you. But the longer you talked, the more you answered those questions. And I appreciate that. The key to, I've been farming 45 years. I have changed from a wheat, fallow wheat farm, tilled farm, to a no-till, corn, wheat, dry peas, etc. because I've learned I've had to adapt to change. And that's what you're talking about. But the biggest impediment to me to adopt to change is my government, local, state, and federal. They have restricted some of the things through the year that I need to do. Slowly we can do more things. But, uh, and you talked about that, you talked about government. And I like your final comment, don't depend upon a central governance system. It could be a hindrance. And I, I support that. And I, I'm, I don't really have a question because I agree with a lot you said, but I just wanted to uh, compliment you for being here and making your presentation. Thank you for sharing that with me. And I just wanted to clarify, what I meant to say was don't depend only on central government. Yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. And Keith, thank you for leading into the question that I have, which is uh, you talked, one of your slides, you talked about having more distributive uh, involvement in, in government at the various levels. Uh, a gentleman um, from OECD has talked uh, in, an, in another sense about needing to uh, vertically integrate the different levels of government because as it is now that some sometimes you get mixed messages sometimes the accumulation of the different regulations restrict as Keith talked about what one can do what can an institute like the water for food and what you're involved with do to well first of all do you agree with that that there needs to be more uh, kind of vertical integration if you will uh, of government so that they're all on the same page and what can the Water for Food and your uh, work do relative to that? Yes, I agree with that. And it's one of the principles of building resilience is to manage these connections, manage connectivity. And whether it's in the ecosystem, keeping the different components of the ecosystem connected or actually keeping these governance systems connected. And the one thing that can be done is to really cultivate and nurture what we call bridging agents. So these are people who are able to move up and down between these different systems of decision-making. Right? So move, work with farmers' study groups, translate those messages right up to central government, bring messages from government, policy messages that are often complex to digest for people on the ground, bring them down and translate them again. So these connectors or bridging agents are absolutely crucial in the system. And I'm wondering whether that's not actually what agricultural extension officers should be doing and whether we should not be training our youngsters coming out of university to play that elevator role, to be these connectors that connect these different systems of governance in society with one another and transfer the information. Thank you again for your talk. I'm wondering, to what degree do you see 
or think at all urban agriculture as an important sectoral shift in enhancing resilience in food production and poverty alleviation uh, around the world. Yeah, um, all I can say is that I think it holds a lot of promise. I think that there is a huge area for innovation and experimentation with different forms of food production in urban gardens, in urban open spaces. And uh, I think it certainly is an area that requires much more research and development.